ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is Welcome to Hard to Paint with David Grubb. I am David Grubb. With the New Orleans Pelicans playing their first exhibition game on Wednesday, this seemed like the perfect time to talk to my friend and colleague, Ali Cosell from TheBirdRights.com about the Pelicans' preparations and what we know and don't know about the playoff sprint in Orlando. So when we return, my conversation with Ali Cosell here on Hard to Paint. Hey, welcome back to Hard to Paint. And joining me now is a friend, collaborator, uh, boss to uh, the editor-in-chief over at thebirdrights.com. And also, we work together on the Bird Calls podcast. My friend, the one and only Ali Cusso. Ali, how you doing today? My favorite balcony buddy. And it's been way too long, David, but yeah. We, 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 uh, we've had such a good time getting to know each other the last few years, and we've connected because of our love for basketball. And let's face it, there's not enough good minds, I feel like, talk about the Pelicans enough and adequately. So love what you're doing. I'm so happy to see that you've got your own podcast up and running. Let's make this thing happen. You're one of the best sports people around, let alone, you know, in New Orleans, my goodness, for, t- for a city that's hurting for guys to talk sports, to tell it like it is and not, you know, Go with the typical narratives. I love it. So we're going to be behind you 100%, buddy. Man, I appreciate that. And I've always appreciated the support that you guys are giving me. Um, let's, talk, let's start there. The state of the media as we deal with the New Orleans Pelicans. Certainly things are changed now because of the limited access. We don't have anybody um, locally representing the, the, uh, the city of New Orleans amongst the media throng in Orlando. But here at home, it just seems, again, with the Pelicans being the dominant story, the only local team that is about to play, they're still flying under the radar for the most part. It sure feels like it, right? Yeah, what is it? I think there's about 20 to 22 journalists outside of whoever's for ESPN allowed to be inside the Orlando bubble. So you're right, yeah. Absolutely nobody from this you know, New Orleans contingent of whether it's you know, Andrew Lopez, Will Guillory, Christian Clark, Nobody, they, I don't think they even had a chance. There wasn't even a thought of them going. So you're right. Everything's kind of on exterior, but still, the Pelicans are flying under the radar. Why? I feel like it is a media presence. Look, Zion has been the number one, I feel like, talking point for the NBA in this Orlando restart. He, alongside, of course, you know, LeBron James is going to be there, Giannis and Damian Lillard. But look, Zion has only played 19 games. The Pelicans are, what, eight games under 500. There should be no reason why they're one of the biggest subjects and most talked about, yet they are. But you're right. I feel like there's just not enough coverage being given to them. And I'm, I'm curious as to why. I'm curious to get your thoughts because I've got a few opinions. But let's start with the most obvious one. Do you think Zion getting hurt is something really going to hurt the team? Because it looked like a lot of things was geared up to – we saw the Bane picture of Zion. Everything was like, wow, this excitement level was building. And I feel like, honestly, as soon as – you know, un- unfortunately, he got the – bad medical news regarding a family member. He had to leave the bubble and who knows if he's going to be back. Like I said, I feel like everybody has really just stopped talking. 
Well, I mean, it didn't seem to me that there was a lot of t- enough talk beforehand. And I think partially that's because the local media is not geared to basketball minds. This has been a football dominant area so much that the best focused writers generally were football writers, whether it be for LSU, whether it be for the Saints. And I think now with the Pelicans, you have a lot of people who either got into the business because they love basketball, but not necessarily love journalism, which is two very different things. Or you have people who are better at journalism than you have necessarily at analysis. And the blend has to be both. I don't think any of us are perfect as as writers, but but you try to get better as a writer. And I don't think any of us are perfect as analysts, but you try to watch more tape. You try to talk to more coaches. You try to talk to more players. And the people who do that, I think it shows up in their work. And the people who don't, I think that's why we see a lot of what feel like retread articles, what feel like retreaded talking points, what feel like things that are beaten into the ground. The thing that I like about what we do at at the Bird Rights is there are so many different angles and points of view. We do take it casually at times for the fans who just want to have fun with it. We are very serious at times. We get very in-depth with analysis. And I think we do a great job of reaching out to people around the organization and within to get their thoughts because we want to be challenged in our own basketball thoughts and a way we perceive the game because we can only see so much from a distance. And I love getting a perspective from people who actually know rather than me guessing from a distance. Yeah. I, I think the biggest drawback to everything that we're talking about here is honestly, there just has not been enough resources given to allow for the opportunity for somebody to blossom, whether it's, you know, a platform, a single voice, right? I mean, look, Justin Barrier came in here. Everybody thought, hey, the rise of Anthony Davis. Pelicans are going to be a perennial playoff contender, building around this MVP, you know, candidate. Look what happened. In a year's time, I think Justin was out of a job. ESPN stopped covering the basketball locally. And I feel like that's been just a common theme ever since I've started following this team. You know, I started following because I moved to – or I was a fan, right? But I started actually wanting to write and give a voice when I moved to Mobile and I just discovered, hey, I miss talking basketball with New Orleans. So started looking around. I couldn't find anything, right, David? There was no good columns being written. Mm-hmm. You, you, in, in the newspaper articles, I mean, I hate to say it, but th- these guys were really terrible about 10, 12 years ago where you would read something on a salary cap and you could tell these guys didn't know what they were talking about. But it, it slowly improved. But again, the bottom line is there's just not the environment conducive to have, I feel like, like I said, those good analysis, the good viewpoints, because there isn't enough fans. It's a small market. The team has always floundered. You know, there's a lot of problems which, you know, are going to contribute. So you can't, you can't push that under the rug. But I feel like everything is turning around. And so I do want to give a hats off to David Griffin. It does feel like, and you've mentioned this numerous occasions, as have I, the organization, I feel like, is now trying to separate itself from its sister in the building, the New Orleans Saints. I think that was always a big deal because they always use the same personnel. They were never transparent under Dell Demps, right? We, we talked to him or heard him speak twice a year, maybe. Maybe. Start of the year, end of the maybe. Year. And we saw how Alvin Gentry had to basically shoulder the load with the Anthony Davis controversy of wanting to be out, wanting to be traded to the Lakers. So from that point to now, it's been such a turnaround. So you've got to feel positive about where I feel like everything's headed. So that's why I, I'm glad we mentioned what we did, but we should move on. 
talk about basically the focus now is going to be on basketball because now we don't have those concerns, right, like they used to be. Yeah, and and I think that this opportunity um, to have the restart, I think it does sharpen your chops a bit too is because you have to be. We're not going to get the same access after games. We're not going to get the length of time that we're used to even in those side conversations. Right. Right. People don't understand in the pregame sessions on the court, in postgame, just getting a little extra from a guy because you're standing around and just having a conversation. Those tidbits that you pick up, we won't get this time. And so crafting these pieces is going to require paying much more attention over the 48 minutes of a game. It it really is. We can't – there's no autopiloting it to get back and say, well, I'll just get the quotes and I'll figure out what I missed. You know, there there won't be any of that. So I'm excited at least to get back to that routine because I've missed it because I love – and you you do too. We love talking about the nuts and the bolts of the game. Building the fan base is going to come down to giving them digestible pieces of information – and giving it to a way that they want to keep coming back. And I think that fans, in a lot of ways, whether they're listening to our podcast, whether it's me, whomever, they're still searching. They're still searching for consistency. They're still searching for a level of quality. And we're all trying to reach that. The Uzis is navy blue, a couple coops. Staying around, stacking, sucking, say the troops. Mansions for 40 niggas, we done, we deucing. Cracking fish in the Ritz, calling, take a piss. They're not the same team that was six and twenty-two. They're not even the same team that went ten and nine with Zion on the on the floor. But the question is, how do they adjust the lineups? Do you think we're going to see the biggest one is putting Zion at the five? And everybody loves Zion at the five. Zach Lowe has talked about Zion at the five. I've never been a giant proponent of it for long stretches. No, what do no. you feel about Zion at the five? It's something that Alvin Gentry still needs to experiment with more, right? Even Zach mentioned in his article, there's only 48 minutes where Zion has been the guy at the five and there's been somebody smaller at the four. Usually it's been four guard lineups around him. And while they had a lot of success offensively, not so much defensively. And we know rebounding, that was always an issue. So there's still a lot of holes in that. So when let's say the offense is struggling or they're going up against a staunch defensive team, how's that lineup going to fare? Don't know, right? I don't think Alvin even knows. So knowing what we know about Zion, He is very gifted offensively. He relied on his talents exclusively in those 19 games. So it showed up in what he was good at, what he excelled at, and what he really did. And, of course, it was on a defensive side. I mean, there's some people that think he was just bad maybe defensively on the perimeter or here or there. No, he was bad everywhere. There was no help defense in the paint. His fundamentals were so poor, and that's something you and I talked about often. He was just usually out of position on a simple pick and roll. He wasn't even able to cover his own man, let alone help, edge, you name it. So I'm hoping if he does come back, we get to see some kind of improvement because it sounds like he's been watching video. And you know this kid, how competitive he is. And so when I remember watching was a Pelicans playback that Jen Hale hosted, the Pelicans are showing old games. He made an appearance one day and he was talking about talking us through like a player too. But you could tell this guy's been watching video, right? And he, was, he knew what his faults were. So if he's at all cleaned some of that up, boy, that's what I'm most excited to see about Zion. That maybe get a little bit more on the defensive glass because let's face it, I mean, when Josh Hart is out rebounding you, um, I mean, what, what did uh, Zion carry? About 6.8 average, right? Right. And he was non-existent in a lot of games. And a lot of times those rebounds just came on the offensive He got end. the space. Yeah, defense, he got a lot of space rebounds, not a lot of box out 
aggressive rebounds. Yeah, we, we do need to mention, though, that that's part of his job. When he was guarding somebody in perimeter, his, his, assi- or his duty was to shoot up the court. We saw right. that, right? Alvin had him flying up there at easy buckets. That's why Lonzo had all these spectacular long-range passes because that was a focal point in that transition game. But still, you want to see Zion just use his body a little bit better. We saw what this guy could do at Duke all over the court. We haven't really seen that here in New Orleans, David. Yeah, and, and one of the things when you talk about a small ball lineup, there are two things you have to have to be successful. And there's only one team in the league that employs a majority of their time with this small ball, and that's the Rockets. And they're successful because of what? You've got two – you've got one extraordinary shooter in James Harden, a guy who gets to the foul line a ton in, in him. You have super athleticism at every position and guys who are defensive. Either it's P.J. Tucker, who's one of the best multi-position defenders in the league, Robert Covington, one of the best defenders in the league. You have Russell Westbrook, who is athletic and can cover and can rebound and do those things. And in open court, he's a nightmare for people. So it, for, for that kind of team, sure, you can play that. But the thing people like to compare Zion to, and this is something David Griffin said, was that he wanted him to be a second level, like the, the super level of a Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about that lineup because the lineup of death that people were so scared of, in the two years with Kevin Durant that they won championships, how, how, what, what do you think the percentage of time that they used that lineup? I know crept up a lot, and especially in the playoffs. That was probably the dominant lineup for Steve Kerr. But just in the regular season, I'll say we saw maybe 30% of the time. Nope. 6% of their minutes. That's in it. The, in 20, and the next year, it went down to uh, 4.8% wow. of their minutes. I guess you got to factor in. They were blowing out teams, so in the fourth quarter, they never even saw time on the court together. Because Curry yeah. used them primarily right. second quarter and third quarter. I would quarter. never have guessed six, Dave. That's really low, but It really was. Low. Yeah, and I, I made sure that I looked it up. It was there, uh, you know, for those two seasons, yeah, less than 6% of their minutes in 2016-17. Um, it was one, 232 total minutes wow. that they were on the floor in 2016-17 out of 3,900 minutes. By any chance, do you look at the playoff numbers? I would love to know those. I didn't check the playoffs, but in the regular season, uh, you know, that's just where I was focused at this one because that's where it would be experimented with more often. You got to make the playoffs to make the playoffs. Mm -hmm. But what was the case? If Alvin puts his five major guys, right, on the court at the same time, what do you got after that? That was the biggest problem, right, this year. A lot of times the starters would hold their own or do well, and then the bench guys would come in and, boy, things would fall apart, right? So that's another Problem. Maybe that's why Alvin couldn't go, you know, a lot of those small ball lineups. What Zion got back, I'm talking about. Because, yeah, you look at – you compare defensively. Zion is not Draymond Green defensively. You know, not at this stage. So you can't – He's not yet. And he's not he's the not passer him. that Draymond Green is. So those two things are, are the most important parts of what drove that small ball lineup. Because you had – because mm-hmm. the passing from other positions isn't really a problem for the Pelicans. No, You're going to get good. passing from Lonzo. You're going to get passing from, uh, from Brandon. You're going to get passing from Josh Hart. They, all those guys are capable of moving the basketball. Drew Holiday, of course. But what you don't have is length in defenders because you could play an Andre Iguodala anywhere from the two to the four. You can play Kevin Durant from the three to the five and, and be effective in those. Like right now, playing Brandon Ingram at the four, you don't want to do it for long. No. And you certainly couldn't play him at the five. You know what I mean? So it's like 
the, those are the major differences for the Pelicans in trying to do that small ball. Like you said, they give up so much defensively right now. We saw it continually. It wasn't just Zion. It wasn't just Ingram. But it was really the whole lineup. Yeah. So that was such an issue. And that's why Derek made such a huge, huge point. I'm sure we'll get to it, right? To where we're not going to worry when Zion comes back. Because if Derek Favors is healthy, that's why we have great hope for this team on still doing well in Orlando. There is only two players on the lineup who had winning records. Two players on the roster had winning records. Zion Williamson at 10 and 9, and Derek Favors at 19 and 17 when he played 20 minutes. Because any other game, it was a partial game. He wasn't really playing. So I only take the games where he played 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. 19 and 17 in those 20 games. I mean, it was 36 games. So that shows you, again, like you said, and the two best lineups that Zion Williamson has are both with Derek Favors. Three out of his top five all have Derek Favors in them. So that whole idea to me that the two of them couldn't get along <laughs> offensively and defensively because it works for them both on both ends. The offensive rating is ridiculously high for that group. The defensive rating of that group was 91.9 over its last 20 games. 91.9. The only team better was the Bucks. That shows you. address that, though, because – some people do have an issue, and if you look at superficially, sure, you got two guys on the court that can't make a basket from outside the paint, and they like to cherry-pick a couple games. That's what I don't like. The Pelicans did, and th- that starting lineup did struggle against both the Bucks and the Lakers on a couple occasions. We saw that. You know, I think they even had an issue. I can't remember if it was Dallas or the Clippers, but it was against one of those two teams, too. Those Clippers. were all the elite teams. Mm-hmm. How many men has this starting lineup played together? 200 and something. Like, it's not a lot. It's 230 total minutes. And I think the thing that people forget about Favors um, offensively is, A, he doesn't hold on to the ball. Wherever he is, Mm -hmm. if he gets it, he knows immediately where. What a great passer from the top of the key, right? We stopped seeing that when Zion came, but that's a talent of Favors. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. People don't give him enough credit for what he does do. And every single uh, I, I hate to have people every one of his efficiency numbers was either at his career high or just beneath it he was so efficient and that in turn mitigates the jump shooting and and those types of things is that when he's around the rim particularly on the offensive glass he finishes if you get him the ball anywhere within 10 feet great he's finishing he's got great hands mm-hmm. beautiful hands and people just forget his shot attempts are down because they have so many scoring weapons around him. It didn't make sense to feed him in the post when you were going to get him on cuts. So I don't need Derek. We, when, when the season started, we said, we didn't need Derek Favors to get 15 points. Because if the Pelicans were scoring the way they were supposed to, if Lonzo was getting 15, if Drew was getting 20, if JJ was getting 13 to 15 off the bench, if Hart was getting double figures, Zion's putting up 20 plus a night, Inger's putting up 20 plus a night, why do I need 15 to 20 from Derek Favors? He was averaging 120 after Zion came back. <laughs> right. They don't need any more points. <laughs> That's not the problem. And three-point shooting certainly for this team was not the problem. You were shooting top five in attempts, makes, that, and percentage. That was the biggest surprise on the year for me, hands down. How, how well they shot consistently from the start of the year until the, you know, the suspension in March, right? I know you mentioned that in one of your articles, 11 things you should know about before the, you know, the season restarts in Orlando. And I'm glad you mentioned that. It hasn't gotten enough of the acclaim that I feel like it deserves. I know Jimmy E with the Pelicans, he wrote an article, but not enough people have talked about just how well the Pelicans shot. And I don't think it's a fluke. They did it over the course of the season. We saw some real improvement by some of the guys. Of course, Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball being the two biggest. 
But, yeah, I mean, that's why you have to feel like this team offensively, there are no problems, right? There is no issue. So don't give me – don't grab on me Zion not being – or, excuse me, I'm Zion Derek being able to hit a jumper, let alone get out to that three-point range or, or whatever. They, ne- they never showed those issues, guys. They never had a problem offensively. There's a big difference to me between rim protector and shot blocker. Mm-hmm. You said rim protector is somebody that – when you, even if you know they're there, even if you don't know they're there, you're anticipating them being there. They are a deterrent. Shot blockers can block shots, and there's a big difference. And it's just, I mean, yeah, Hassan Watsite, great shot blocker, not a rim protector. Nikola Jokic, not a great shot blocker, great rim protector. You know what I'm saying? So it's like those things, there are very few guys who can do them both. And Rudy Gobert is one of those people. Dikembe Mutombo is like one of those people. But yeah, to, I'd much rather have a rim protector who's not getting a ton of shot blocks, but is getting alters, who's making the shots more difficult, that are allowing me to get defensive rebounds, particularly for Alonzo Ball to get out in the open court. And like you said, create lobs for Zion or to get to the lane himself where Alvin Gentry really wants him to do more often. I just think that it, the construction of the team needs rebounders. You have shooters, you need rebounders. When they went 6-22 and 22 to start the year, I want to say they're about 21st in total rebounding. Poor offensively, poor defensively. As soon as Derek came back on December 18th, they jumped up to 5th. When Zion came back, they then moved up just to 4th or 3rd. So from December 18th on, boy, what a turnaround on the rebounding. So when people just talk about defensive um, lapses by the team, breakdowns and such, yeah, they happen. But another big part was the rebounding. And as soon as they fixed that, I think that's a major reason why all of a sudden they jumped up to whatever you just said, 91.9 uh, defensive rating over whatever – what was it during – what was it? Those final 20 games me. of the season. Mm-hmm. There you those go. final 20. So all those improvements. So guess who was responsible for that? Derek Favors, guys. Derek Favors. And here's the other thing. Yes, in the playoffs, we have often seen Rudy Gobert – get taken off the court because, you know, let's face it, Utah was not playing well. Houston or whoever, Portland would Houston's take advantage Houston's a terrible matchup for them, yeah. Capella, same thing. There'd be times where they, you know, Mike D'Antoni was forced to take him off. I just feel like with Derek Favors, if Alvin does have to go off, he, he can go play that small ball. He can maybe insert Nicola Melli. But here's oftentimes why I feel like Favors can stay on the court. It's because the Pelicans have three dynamic offensive weapons and then some great shooters – that I don't think it matters. I don't – you can't say that about Utah. You can't say about Houston. They really just had just one guy that could really break down their man. Pelicans have two that are great in isolation, Drew Holiday and Brandon Ingram. Zion is such a gravity-making machine because the way he moves and can find the scenes and get through just – you name it. He gets to the rim. Teams know what they want. he wants to do, but yet he still easily led the league at points at the rim. So that's three such dynamic scores that I just feel like, again, Favors isn't going to hurt you on that offensive end. No, and, and that comparison to Utah, you talk about that. Again, yeah, Donovan Mitchell is still not a efficient score. He's a volume score. And when he gets cold, it makes it impossible because you need points now. You put yourself in that position. And without a Bogdanovich, without a, a Joe Ingles for them in the playoffs, yeah, that cripples them as far as not having enough shooting on the outside to make things work for them. Mike Conley is not Mike Conley this year. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, those things are huge. For the Pelicans, you don't face those, those same types of, of problems defensively. And like we talked about, the Alvin has said this. They had Ricky Rubio. Look at what Alonzo Ball's doing right now. 
and, and, and this was something that Alvin stressed so often to you and I and to the rest of everybody, was that the Pelicans just had to close possessions. The second shot was what killed them so often. Was that they that the you know they gave up the offensive board and the team got a clean look at a three or they got a drive right to the basket because people were not boxing out and that was something that we watched in video or practice the other day real quick and we were looking at it and it was mm-hmm. not um, it was I think it was the the whose video was it I think it was a, a Drew video but Jackson Hayes popped out at me because I'm like he's still not boxing out and I just would love to see. Jackson Hayes and Jaleel Okafor particularly, just do that. They don't have to get the board, but box out. With Ja, I want to see him. I feel like he's got the most potential to help this team out of amongst the bigs. I know we talked about our podcast with the other guys. I wasn't too keen on any one of these guys stepping up, but after thinking about it, I think Ja could be that guy to spot some minutes. Jackson's just going to be primarily used by Alvin for any kind of momentum switches, I feel like, or when it's a speed, speedy lineup, right? And, you know, Jackson's not going to get beaten up by, like, say, Gobert or somebody. But for the most part, Ja, there were moments this year where I felt like he, he boxed out. He got some key rebounds. Um, he even played a little defense. I remember there being a couple key, what was it, like defensive stretch where he'd come up with two blocks in a row and be like, wow, we never saw him do that in Philly. So he moved a little bit better. But the problem is, of course, always what? When he gets dragged out, say, outside of, what, six, seven, eight feet from the rim, Golden State, even just Draymond Green, non-offensive player, right? Really no talent. He destroyed Jaleel, and so he was unplayable. It'll be interesting for me to see, because he does look better, David, his body. I just want to see, is there better mobility in those legs and that body? Because if there is, like I said, he could surprise. I'm not holding out too much hope for Jackson. He's he's so young. He's going to have to learn so much. And then Kenrich, I don't know. You know, Kenrich is such a great practice player, seems like to me. We talk to the coaches. They love him. We see him make shots all the time. But for some reason, he has this big stumbling block of having it transferred to the games. I feel like Lonzo kind of used to have that, but he overcame his demons, right? He was fantastic for two and a half months, but Kenrich has never done it. So that's why I'm very weary of, you know, expecting anything out of Kenrich too. Yeah, I think that when you look at Ja, um, he needs somebody to be the defender next to him. When you put John, you have to have a strong four. Oh, yeah. And the Pelicans don't have – You have Drew, Lonzo, at least those three perimeter guards. Yeah. But he needs somebody on on that who who has a four who can step out a bit and, you know, defend a little bit on the perimeter and and kind of – Josh Hart could do that? I I don't know because Hart gives up so much size. It depends on who the four is. You know what I mean? And so I definitely – I'd definitely be interested in seeing some more Jaleel um, Zion lineups to see what that looks like for that opposite side to have Zion there to maybe be a recover defender and come across and get a weak side because I think he's better weak side than he is strong side in the post. But again, that's something to experiment with during the scrimmages. And that's why you've got these scrimmages. Are, yeah. How excited Speaking are you? That's going to be great to watch. Yes. Because yeah, we're finally, we're, we're within. Five days now. We're three days. Three days. Three days, game. yeah. So, I mean. Then we're going to get three of them in what, eight days, seven days, something like that? How, what are you going to be looking for um, in these games? Because to me, I'm not looking at shooting first. My thing is, no, no, no. what's the effort level? 
And it's just like any the first two when every breakdowns, year, David, I don't want to see breakdowns. I want to see fundamentals. I want to see team working as a co- cohesive unit. I want to make sure that you know there's no rebounding lapses. You know, it's just it's the simple stuff. If they can check all those boxes, then that means to me that they're in tune enough to where they're not going to get hurt by and give up, say, you know, 20 second chance points, 25, 30 points off of turnovers, right? That, those were the big Achilles heels for this defense this year. And that's why I feel like, you know, even when they were scoring a lot of points earlier in the year, they were still losing games. So I just don't, I want to see a cleaner defensive effort. Um, and, you know, basically, I don't want to say leadership out there on the court, but, you know, things are going to go wrong. Who's going to step up for this team, right? They're still all young. That's going to be interesting to watch for, too, because Drew Holiday in the past was entrusted, right, as the face of the franchise. Given the keys at the start of the year, he didn't really seize it because he was struggling immensely with his shot and confidence. But now that the players have really all, when the season came to an end, were really all flying high, I'm curious how much of that will carry over, right? So will Lonzo still be assertive, aggressive? Same with Drew. None of this, I'm going to dribble around and then make some kind of bad decision. B.I., don't take on double teams, triple teams, which we saw him do sometimes. So it, it's just really just that, that, that type of basic, simple stuff, right, David? You don't want to see too, no individual play. No. Alvin always lamented that. But if they can stay on track, trust their system, and just like I said, avoid the breakdowns, they'll be fine. But that's what you have to watch for, I think, right? What about you? And that was – remember, that was our issue during the preseason. You know, it was like you could see – yeah, it was great that they were winning all the preseason games, but you could see the defensive breakdowns. <laughs> and that was the thing is that – and Alvin, again, people have not given him the credit over the years for emphasizing defense. Every time we've had a conversation with him. Every time. Here's a question for you, David. How much do you think it's going to hurt them not having Jeff Bazdillic there? I, can't, I keep going back and forth on this. So it, I'm yeah, I'm, on the one hand, I'm like – I'm glad that they're in constant connection, that they, they you know, that they're, that his strategy is there. And I'm also kind of happy that his voice is not there because I think that there was a time earlier this year where there was a lot of tension and his voice can be, especially for a younger team. Yes. It's important for them to be disciplined. It's, but I think that a lot of those guys needed to be built up from where they had come from. And I don't know if Bizdelic was great at that at the beginning, and I think where they are right now is in such a good place that you kind of don't want them to, to that real harshness to come in. But I also see his value in, look, they didn't do all this just because of the players on the court. There was strategy involved. There is mm-hmm. practice involved. We saw it during the pregames that how serious they were about getting to the fundamentals defensively. So, yeah, I kind of worry about some slippage, but at the same time, if Fred Vincent is half the kind of coach that he is implementing defense that he is with teaching people how to shoot, <laughs> then I'm not worried. Yeah, I hope it's that easy. <laughs> <laughs> now let's focus on Lonzo uh, because the emphasis for him, two things. Number one is everybody's talking about his leadership, that he has asserted himself more, that he's been more vocal, more take charge. And then you have this part on Alvin who says, Okay, if you're aggressive, now I expect these things from you, particularly getting to the foul line. He wants five trips a game to the line for Lonzo. Two, three was – I mean, there are games of three. We were like, wow, he got three free throw attempts tonight. Five is a big jump. Do you think he can do that in the midst of this short eight-game span going into a playoff berth, or is that something that's going to take the summer? 
No, I don't even want him to try, honestly, David. That's so out of his element where he's going to aggressively attack the rim when, you know, at the start of the year we saw him, I mean, not even looking for a shot, not even looking to make a drive to where if he did have even some kind of, you know, attempts for layups in transition, he would blow him sometimes, right? Or he'd get him to shot blocked by a, a, a smaller guy. It was, just, it was just kind of unfathomable, but he, he really struggled. He, of course, did improve even in that area. To where I remember seeing something, what was it, transition, his field goal percentage was hovering around in the high 20s, low 30s for the first few months, and then wrapped up in the high 50s. And then we also saw him, you know, in some games towards the last two months where he would attack. He wasn't attacking consistently. He wasn't James Harden, guys. But there would be a key moment in the game to where he would see a seam or something, and guess what? He drove, and he would score. He didn't often get to the free throw line. That, that's going to take probably the most work, right? Realizing, hey, I'm a six foot six guy. I should be able to somehow use my length, athleticism, and all this to, if, even if I don't get a clean, good look, I'm at least going to absorb the contact, get to the free throw line. Look, it's taken some players their whole careers and learn how to do that, David. Drew Holiday, I think, is a great, great, you know, person to bring up right here because Drew, for all his ability on breaking down his uh, uh, defensive assignment, and getting to the rim, he's never been good at getting the free throw line because he just doesn't draw fouls well, right? Right. You've got to learn how to play through contact to seek it out, and that's how you should look for your shots instead of trying to, you know, whether it's shooting around, over, under. People like we've seen, like with Drew, AD in the past, I think is a good example. Even though AD got to the line enough, there's still examples where you can do more to get to that free throw line. But, no, I think Lonzo has definitely asserted himself. And, you know, Alvin Gentry, what did he say last week to me when I asked him about it? He says that – this is Lonzo's team that on the court, he is their on-court leader. So I think that's huge news to where we saw how poorly he started the year to the point where Alvin even had to sit him, right? He benched him. And remember the outcry over that? Yeah, because, and again, I personally want to people got to stop putting that like he was benched for Kendrick. But, but, but look how well it worked out. David. Yeah, that, that, that was crazy. But look, Lonzo, I feel like he got physically healthy. He kind of, maybe the game slowed down for him some. He got some confidence, saw the ball go through the hoop. Whatever it was, it was probably a combination of all the things. But look, Alvin then reinserted him in the lineup. He started playing 35 minutes a game. And there is no question the Pelicans were a much better team when he was on the court, especially when he was directing a lot of those quick breaks, even defensively, right? We saw him improve over the course of the season. So, yeah, the sky really is the limit. And I wasn't kidding when I said a few months ago that this guy may be fetching a max contract. He's going to probably be on an all-star uh, game or all-star team or two. Because now the players are saying, not just the coach. J.J. Reddick said it the other day. Yep. Now, so talking about that contract, our thought before had been that there's no way Lonzo takes an, ex- uh, an extension this offseason because he wants more money. And now you're seeing this push again. Pelicans have to sign Lonzo this summer. Pelicans – I don't see any circumstance he, he, because all he knows what they can offer him. I know he wants to be They're in not going to offer him a max extension. I wouldn't do it right now if I'm Griffin probably. No, he want to see you want to see if he can do it for 2 years. If he can do it in back-to-back seasons, can he stay healthy? healthy? Can he continue can be to be that healthy, confident guy we saw for two and a half months? But I don't think Lonzo wants to sign this offseason. It won't hurt his feelings. I think that's a bigger thing, right? Just like with B.I., there was an understanding between B.I. and the organization, we're not going to sign an extension as soon as we uh, traded for you. They were happy. We saw B.I. coming out of the gate strong. And we started hearing the rumors right away. Griff's going to offer him the max. There's no hurt party, no nothing. Same stuff's still going to get done. It just didn't have to get done on day one. 
No, and I think it's, it's, it's the way Griff has to handle this right now. When you get a whole bunch of guys who are coming in and aren't sure because, they've again, they had failure to an extent, to a large extent, based on their expectations where they were before. They come in. They don't know if they want to be where they are because they, they've never been anywhere else. And they don't know what you are. So that feeling out process on both sides, I think Griffin handled it very well by saying, and, and I, I firmly believe this, is play the season, man. We want you here. But we also want you to feel good about being here. And don't take this because uh, you don't want a guy to sign this, the contract simply for the security of the dollars. Not with this team. The Pelicans can't afford to have guys collecting checks. They have to have guys who are earning their value because they can't make up for their mistakes easily financially. So I think it's, it's so important for Griffin to establish those relationships with these guys over the next few years so that they trust him to, to an extent. It's still business, but they have to trust him enough to an extent that he's not going to screw them. Yeah, no, I want to put this out there because a lot of people will read the situation wrong in a couple months' time, sometime during the next season where they'll be like, oh, look, Lonzo's not you know, cheerleading on the sidelines. He's never once said, oh, I can't wait to continue, sign that you know, next contract and stay with the Pelicans. Look, from what I'm hearing from you know, kind of rumblings in the locker room and all that, he's never been happier on a professional court. He knows how much it is to him to be around players like B.I. and Zion, the two cornerstones of this franchise. He knows that he's a much better player. They bring out the best in him make him shine more than really any other situation out there. So why would he want to go elsewhere? And here's the other point. All you really need to know about the way the ball family feels is by what LeVar's saying. And what has he said all season, really? He has been in Alvin Gentry's corner because he says what? Lonzo was never given an opportunity to run free in Los Angeles. It was, it was really that easy. And this was especially true when LeBron James came over. We've talked plenty about what LeBron does to teams especially for players that need the ball in their hands. But yep. no such issue. So LeVar's always been a corner. So like I said, I feel like it's a perfect situation. So don't misread it when Lonzo, like I said, isn't – because he's not a vocal guy. Most of those guys in that Pelicans locker room are not. But trust me when I say this, Lonzo's incredibly happy on being here. He knows what this team can not only do, but that this situation is so good for him and his career. I hate to go back to the journalism, but it's so funny because there was an article this week that you saw, and the title was Brandon Ingram still in the Pelicans' long-term plans. And it's like, what? and we're going to do this again with Zoe next year, and we're going to do this. a month in the last season. He was getting right. the max. He was going to be here. He was happy. I'm sorry. There's not a player that wanted more out of L.A. to get away from LeBron James and B.I. guys. Yep. We, we heard enough through the grapevine, all that. Brandon Ingram did not like that situation there one bit. He and, and the thing between him, Zion, and Zoe, the three of them, that connection, offensively and defensively, I think they all know. You know, we talk about big threes. If you get an organic big three in your team in your locker room, and you've got guys who genuinely like each other, which I think is the impression that we have of this Pelicans team. I, th- I think it's real. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, like being around them. We've seen good chemistry on, in that locker room, and we've seen awful chemistry. And last year was toxic. You know, last year was just awful. And this year, going in, even when they were 6-22, and 22, that was still the most upbeat 6-22. It wasn't just last year, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm just, you know, the, I remember when Boogie? Remember when Boogie? Ooh, it, Boogie and AD? People don't understand how their relationship really wasn't that good. No. Off the court, yeah, great. 
boy, on the same floor in the same locker room, a lot of the bad untold moments. stories of Boogie and AD and Rondo, mm-hmm. like that. And I've had a lot of conversations with people who cover the Lakers about that because they see it. They saw it when they were all together this time. And it was just like, we could have told you. You know, we could have told you. I mean, like, these situations of chemistry, it's, it's something that we talk about in sports a lot. And it's not something you can manufacture. You have no idea. And people love to do that. And I think that's, what, that's one of the problems that I think people get with um, our, like, our good friend Fletcher. I love Fletch. Mm-hmm. But people, when he proposes trades, I think that's – or other people propose trades. I think that when you take the human element out of it and you just look at it as basketball skill and I want to drop this, this is what our team needs, and you take the humanity out of it, that is why the Pelicans failed for so many years is that you had guys who were never on the same page. And this group feels like they want to be together to write their own story as a group, as a group, not just one guy, but as a group they feel like they can do something special together. Brandon Ingerman. Lonzo Ball shoot every day together in every practice. When they're away on the road, they oftentimes go to a gym the night before, whenever, go work out together. It is unquestionable to me how much they care for and love playing with one another. And then I think Zion fits in so well because there's an instant connection that you commented, I think, more than anybody else in preseason, that we saw a chemistry budding you know, in those first five games that they were together, games that didn't count, doesn't matter. You still saw something that where they were just making eye contact yeah. and they could read what the other one was thinking. So remember, I remember there being a key um, sequence to where Lonzo passed the design for an alley-oop. I forget what happened on the other end of the court, but then on the uh, next, very next play for the Pelicans, Zion's throwing an alley-oop to Lonzo. Yep. Then we're like, wow, okay. So you saw that blossom. So I, I have no doubt that Lonzo and Zion are, are you know, they're going to be gonna, to the hip as well. Where is he going to go that's going to be better than this for him? You know what I'm saying? That, and yeah, and what's great, goal. David, these three young guys, they're all under the age of 25, yet they have such a maturity. I feel like in such an understanding. And, and none of these guys are there just for themselves, right? We don't want the 30 points a game. I need those accolades. I'm not going to throw out some names who I think are kind of like those players in the league, but these guys don't exhibit any of that. When they lose, boy, do they get frustrated. But there's still – you can tell in their answers in post-game and stuff like that where their heads are at. And I think nobody's better and surprised me more than Brandon Ingram, right? How fantastic of an interview was he for a 22-year-old on being able to examine, break down a game right, after, right afterwards? It's a very rare quality. And the accountability. That was something that had been lacking in the Pelicans locker room for a number of years. If somebody after the game, when they lost saying, this was on me, this was on me. I didn't do what I needed to do tonight. You rarely heard that. Drew was one of those guys, unless he was saying, well, I got to go check the film, but you know, Drew would take responsibility. Uh, but a lot of guys just, you know, would say, Hey, we didn't do this. We didn't do that. We, 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 but Ingram from day one, as soon as he figured out that he was going to be the guy shooting the ball, and that defensive key on him, when they lost, he took it heavy. He took it personally. And I think that, that everything about him belies that. You see him and everybody sees he's always be easy, always so calm. And it, that dude wants to win. He's he a is, killer on the court. Whew. There are no – and that is the thing people – like I think the, the people took them as their quietness being mm-hmm. a lack of competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't the case because – we met with all those guys one-on-one, every one of them. 
the only one that I wish would talk about winning more, and I said it's just because I'm hard on him. He's 19, Jackson Hayes. He's the only one where I feel like, dude, do you really want to win? But he's 19, and I don't want to be too harsh on that because he's figuring out what it is to be an adult and a professional. So, but other than that, when you sit around that team, it's a bunch of guys who just want to compete. Nobody ducked us all year, David, in years past. I couldn't tell you how much I couldn't stand. We're just waiting around the locker room to talk to somebody. Or as soon as we get there, we're passing two, three, four guys already out the door that they know, you know, they're one of the top guys on this team that we're looking to talk to them, and they're already out the door. That never happened once this year. Team's worst losing streak in franchise history never happened once. Nope. Nope. Nobody ducked. Nobody ducked. And we, ne- we only really had, a, what, two Alvin outbursts this season? You really only had like two? No, yeah, he, he was so much more reserved. You're right. There was only like two I games where he was, was just his like worst one. What was his worst one? The Utah game was bad. He, I think that was one where after the Utah game where he was just like that was some bull because he was he was like I, I, I'm gonna get fi-. you know I think he cursed that night because he was he knew he was gonna get fined on the Gobert or no call. And then I, th- I can't remember the other one where he just kind of blew up. I think it was my question, and I asked him one question and he blew and then he left. And I kind of knew that I was going to ask him something that was going to make him. I did him that in years past. I was a guy responsible for having him blow up. And I wanted to. I like. I was. Gonna, I knew I was going to poke him, but not in a I disrespectful way. I remember the game. But I, the thing is, but it was very few this year. Even during that, like you said, no, even was. during that, yeah, had a lot of tough, hard luck losses. Right, the Brooklyn Nets. They lost in overtime, and we saw the pain on the players' faces. So Alvin felt it. These guys were trying. They never quit. You know, in years past, they, it wasn't so much as they quit. They just didn't do the right things on the court. Yeah, this year you you saw them really trying, and it just, it just boy, clutch time was just such a nightmare this year, David. You have to think they're gonna they're gonna. There's no way but to go up from there. I mean, they yeah. were just that bad. I mean, if they again, we're talking about a team that if they had just been mediocre defensively, they'd already be in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that wouldn't even be a question right now. If they were mediocre during those first forty games, mm-hmm. yeah, it it would have been they'd be in the playoffs. And it's that simple. They're that talented. I think, you know, that, that desire of folks to keep tinkering and make major changes to this roster, you've got nine spots, eight, nine spots secured for next season, essentially already. And you have the draft coming up with these, we have a first rounder and three seconds. There's no need to go and look externally and for a major plan out. We don't know what DD's going to be given a role. Yeah. They, they, I absolutely they, they, think Didi's a part of their plan for next season, how much we don't know. But I absolutely think they want it because of his length, because of his ability to get to the basket. I think want to keep him close to the team. I think he's ready for that next step. I'm just wondering whether it's going to be to a G League contract or do you make him part of the regular 15-man roster. I think I would offer G League. You can always convert it to a regular season roster if he shows that you know he's deemed worthy. It, I think it depends on Nikhil and Frank. If, Nikhil, if they don't feel super confident that Nikhil's going to advance from year one to year two, and if they let Frank go, and I would still – and also the Darius, Darius Miller thing because his contract's not guaranteed. If you let no. those guys go and you've got three seconds to come in and you're looking probably for bigs with your seconds, maybe a couple of those you use on bigs. So you bring in Didi to play a 2-3 role because he's not going to be your point, but at a 2-3 mm-hmm. with that length, mm-hmm. I mean, I could – wouldn't, would you feel just as confident giving Didi those minutes that are going to Frank Jackson right now? Yeah. I, I, Frank's a guy that we've rooted for, right? We, we see the athleticism. This guy's a great kid. And he became a bulldog defensively. 
but David, he's almost like when I said earlier about Kenrich, for some reason translating from practices to games, it didn't work for him to where I saw that confidence issue on the offensive end, where in too many games, the first few touches, first few shots were very shaky. You saw whether he's missing a layup attempt. You know, there was one game, my camera was Miami Heat or somebody, but he had like three successive shots right at the rim, blew a layup attempt, got his rebound, almost airballed his own attempt, something like that. But you saw the nerves fully on display. That's something he's got to overcome. And, you know, we never saw it. We didn't see that true next progression, that type of step, like we did out of Lonzo. So I'm curious about will the Pelicans bring him back? We know that they've been high on him, right? Even this new regime under David Griffin, they're still quite high on him. But are they still high enough to offer him another contract? So, Dave, real quick, let's talk about that. Out of all the guys that are going to be up in free agency, who do you think they should bring back? You know, it's each one more, Frank Jackson, Kenrich, Jaleel, uh, Derek Favors, and whoever else I'm forgetting. And Brandon. <laughs> Brandon. Well, Brandon's a given, Brandon's buddy. a lock. Brandon's a lock. Miller. Should they give him? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm trying, to, if, I'm, I'm trying to get away from Darius Miller. Again, it's to me. It's about he and Frank. The problem for me is their redundancies. I don't. I can get what Frank Jackson offers me from somebody else, and I can get somebody else who's maybe taller, maybe cheaper, younger. I don't know any of those things that I've invested three years of my life with Frank Jackson, and it just hasn't popped. He may fit somewhere else, but it hasn't popped here. And so why am I going to carry a guy who's going to be at best my eighth man? So why would I carry that? You know what I'm saying? That just doesn't make sense to me. Same with Darius. At his best in this group, he's not getting minutes ahead of Josh Hart. He's not getting minutes ahead of J.J. Redick. He's not getting minutes ahead of Etwan Moore. So I don't need him. He doesn't offer me enough as a rebounder, a passer, a defender, and he's such a hesitant shooter. So most of the guys, the only one of that group is if I can't find a legit big in free agency or in the draft, then I want to bring Ja back because I need another big. I have to have one. And he knows my system. He's not going to be a problem. He's a great long guy. Yeah. yeah. But he's out of the other guys. He and Etuan, I could see come bringing Etuan back at a reasonable price. Favors, again, I think favors the advantages with the Pelicans. I don't think he wants to leave. I think he wants to be here. So I think favors you can get at a reasonable price. I think Etuan doesn't want to leave either. As long as they remember he was a DMP a lot. I think Etuan's gonna go, personally. I mean, I think he would if if the if if you get rid of the log jam some and you're not giving those minutes to Frank, I think he might stay. But yeah, he's well, also I feel like Nal will grab those minutes from Frank if Frank goes. But Etuan, yeah. I mean, teams are gonna want him. Why would you not want yeah. a veteran That's who can hit forty percent of his Somebody's threes. gonna pay him enough. Pelicans are gonna to want to give him that money. If the Lakers, I mean, think of the Lakers could offer him money to come and be a guy shoot to shoot. Lakers would love to have each one. Denver, you know, they they could use another shooter. Portland doesn't have shooters off the bench, so yeah, there'll be people who are after each one. But the other ones, it's Favors and Ja and everybody else is like, I'm not keeping Kenrich. I'm not keeping Frank. I'm not. I could see Frank. I'll be honest. I could see Frank. I still feel like he can be a spark plug on offense for you. And he, this system is a fit for him. I really do. When you combine that with how much locker room he gets along with them and they, they with him. But does he hinder Nall? Does he hinder Nall and does he hinder Didi if he's on the – I think that they play different positions, but the Didi one's a good argument. But with Nall and Frank, Frank is not a point guard. He'll never be one of the 
top two, maybe even three ball hand, or I should say playmakers on the court, right? He's just not that. He's instant offense. That's, I feel like that's his ceiling. If you feel like that's a role that you kind of need to explore and you want on this team, then you should explore keeping Frank. But if not, you got to move on from him. But with Kenrich, yeah, I mean, I know everybody loves him. Great story. Everybody's rooting for him. But look, you've got to be able to show it on the court. And I know what some of these advanced numbers said in the beginning of the year, and it's all just a matter of him knocking down the shot. But boy, that confidence was just so lacking, David, right? To where I just, when he doesn't have the athleticism, he doesn't do really anything else for you offensively. You, you just have to look somewhere else. You've got all these picks coming in, like you said. You've got an issue on this team of guarding big threes and fours, good scores in the league. And that was supposed to be Kenrich. And let's face it, I thought defensively at times he was good. He's a great guy of maybe grabbing some momentum by coming up with a key play. But consistently, from possession to possession, he's overrated defensively in my book. He, he gets backed down by bigs. And his that lateral is, movement. You remember what he did to him one game? against the Pacers. He was trying to guard him at the four, and Thad scored on like four out of five possessions like that. Yeah, It's just – and again, let's look at Kenrich's age because if you re-sign him, you're signing him to a two- or three-year deal. That's what – I mean, it, you're not keeping – why would you invest one year in Kenrich? That just doesn't make sense to me. If you're keeping him, you're, you're saying, I want to keep you a little bit. His timetable at 24, 25 years old. Minimum, they might keep him. That's the only way I see it happening. I mean, at 24, 25, though – on the timetable you're on, yeah. So on the timetable you're on with Zion and with Zoe and with Ingram, by the time, you know, again, he's not in your top eight. He's not in your top eight. And if you're using him at the three, that means you've already gone through Ingram. You've gone through Hart. You've potentially gone through DD. You've potentially mm-hmm. – I mean, like, think about the guys it's going to take to get him, you know, to get him minutes at the three. And at the four, if you're playing him next to, to Zion at the four in a small ball, no, no, it just, it can't work. It just can't work. And you don't want him playing the four, you know, at, at any other time. Because again, like you said, he won't, he's not a gifted enough ball handler to take advantage of fours off the dribble. And he doesn't create plays for his teammates. Here's another thing I'm worried about. I, I think he's injury prone, David. He, his, knees, right? his knees coming, you know, in school. He, what did he do, lose an ECL or two or something? Either way, his knees are bad when he entered the league. And then last year, what happened? A lot of issues with his back. And at age 25, he's had all these issues to where he can't even for half a season stay fully healthy, fully mobile on the court. Yeah, I, I just feel like, no, you got to move on from a guy like that who doesn't have that, that upside. upside. <sighs> yeah. It, it, but I think that, that that also gives them a ton of potential on the roster too. That flexibility that we talked about ever since the, the trade for um, these guys, that flexibility going years forward, I think that's why you're going to keep shifting at the bottom of the roster. That's what you want is that turnover at the bottom rather than losing those three to four key guys at the top. The last one on, on the current guys, that Drew Holiday situation, um, that's always been a thing about whether or not to trade him. Like you said, at midseason it was a big deal. With the short turnaround between this season and next, I don't see any way that Drew's going anywhere before, unless there's just a complete implosion next season before the All-Star break. Nah, no way. Look, you got to go back to what worked, and that, of course, is a starting lineup. And then you look at Drew's fit in that lineup. He's without the doubt that key, great, veteran perimeter defender that this team needs 
alongside Brandon Ingram, J.J. Redick. Lonzo Ball still isn't even close to being the defender that Drew is. So Drew is such a great – and it's sad to say, Dave, we always talk about how he's so underrated in the league as a two-way player, but he is. He's criminally underrated. There's few better two-way players in the league, bar none. So why would you want to get rid of such a great asset when, honestly, the returns from what we heard at the last trade deadline weren't that good? Denver didn't want to move off of Porter Jr., uh, Michael Porter. And what was it? Oh, and the Miami Heat, Hero, Tyler Hero. They didn't want to include him in any deal. So if you can't even get a player of that caliber that's unproven but has a good talent, for Drew, no way you move him. I just don't see it. No, I think I think if you're the Pelicans, you play this out again, and then when you get with Drew at the end of the season of next season, when his contract is up, and he, he comes, he's going to be having an option right after yeah. next season. Uh, but and I think he'll take the option because most players do. He should. It's, it's so but yeah. His but talk about this. His his, his uh, salary is a concern, even though yes. fit wise he's great. How do the Pelicans, David, circumvent, or when should they start? I'm. Let me think here. How long should they give this experiment to play out because of those concerns about the salary cap because of Drew's big number on it going forward? Like, like I said, I, I'd look to – you go through the season. Let's say if they make the playoffs next season and they're a six or a five, then I think you go to Drew at the end of the season and say, let's do a two plus one, you know, and we'll backload the two one. So if they're successful, you would come back and offer him something. Yeah, yeah. If they, if 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 not, not skip into the playoffs. You know, not forty-one and forty-one playoffs and first-round exit. Right, not that. But if they're a leg- you see, there's a jump from last year. You know, like the Denver jump. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you. If you see that kind of jump, then you say, okay, it's like carrying Paul Millsap's yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. It's like carrying that Millsap. You're like, all right, we can do that for a little bit longer because we're we're close. We're close. I would talk to him about a show. And I think Drew would do that. I think Drew would understand, okay, this is a business. I don't want to go anywhere. I'm cool here. Let's do a short-term deal that pays me. Get me my money, but we'll do short. I'll do the, I'll do the short for you because I see there could be something special here. And I think in two, if, if that were the case, Drew at 32, by then, I think you've gotten the best of Drew. You know what I mean? Like you've squeezed all the best out of Drew that you possibly could at 32, 33 years old at that point. And now you're in a position to say, Drew, let's move you to sixth man. You know what I'm saying? And, and now the salary has to start coming back. Andre's a good dollar roll. Right. And you start saying, okay, now you're sixth man. Hang around. You, you play spot defense. You get to score against second units. That would be my plan if I'm talking about Drew Holiday down the road three, four, five years. But I can't – I wouldn't give him a five-year deal or so, a four-year max deal or something like that. No, I'm not doing that because there are too many guys I got to pay coming up. And some of those are going to be first-round picks. Or mm-hmm. depending on how the next labor negotiation goes, who knows what the player acquisition thing is going to be. How is it going to go with the G League and, and getting rights to players and things like that? It's going to be – it could be a completely different – universe in another year or so in the NBA. So yeah, I'm not thinking about signing Drew for a long-term deal. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that I'm not going to add anything to it because that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. I really do. Yeah. The, Drew's such an integral part and he's going to be made to feel like that. And I don't think it's going to take offering him another max deal for him to understand that. Right. Drew's smart. He understands. He's, he's going to, his role is going to be diminishing a little bit. I think personally, the guy's going to like that. Right. He, he, 
shined the best when he was allowed to pick and choose his offense because that's how much he exerted himself on the defensive end, right? So I feel like if he's given that, then he's going to just realize, hey, I'm not going to be counted on to do all this and that. And look, he may want to play in the league for a while. So taking a you know reduced role, especially coming off the bench like Andre Goddard, especially if it's on a winner, that might be the best thing for him and the Pelicans. So, yeah, you think yeah. about a second unit where Drew Holiday is your lead guard mm-hmm. and you have the young guys coming up with that group and he's, he's a part of the closing lineup as, you know, like a and small still, Yeah, you can still lineup. play him there at, as a closer um, and you're just saving him. And instead of playing him 36 minutes a night, you're playing him 22, 24 minutes a night and you're allowing him to, to, to dominate second unit. How units. great was Monte Ginobili in his later years just playing 25, 26 minutes for Pop? Yeah. And that's the thing. You extend Drew then. Then you're, you're getting that value because hopefully by then, two years' time, three years' time, the Pelicans are now top four seed. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're expecting. That's the, that's the trajectory and they have they to take. If Drew, then yeah. Yep. And, and so I'd keep him around for that. All right. Let's, lastly, let's wrap up with this. Individual awards. Not a lot of Pelicans or players are going to be up for consideration. Primarily, we're talking Brandon Ingram uh, up for MIP, um, and we're talking Drew Holiday for all defensive team. Alvin Gentry's not going to get Coach of the Year votes, even though there's, there's a case to be made that turning around 6-22, but there are just too many candidates again this year. Same thing um, with, I feel like, David Griffin, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. So is, is Ingram the, really the sole hope here? at this point in earning um, an individual award. Yeah, for I mean, Zion has no chance to win rookie of the year, right? Sham said the NBA is only going to count the games up to March 11th. Well, Zion's got 19 games under his belt. He needed the additional regular season and for the Pelicans, I think, to overtake the Grizzlies, make the playoffs to really at least cement a great argument for his behalf. Now he doesn't have that. There's no way. So that's Morant's to win for sure. So yeah, it comes down to Brandon. And I love the discussion that you had the other day, but I'll start with this. Brandon Ingram has such a great season individually, offensively, for a 22-year-old that we've rarely ever seen in this league. The improved, not only points per game, guys, not only the improved uh, assist percentage, it was that three-point shot. Not only the percentage, the volume. He was always lived in the mid-range. He would only, he wouldn't even, if I remember right from Preston's article, never made more than one three a game during his first three years with the Lakers. He's up to almost two and a half with the Pelicans. Such a game changer that I feel like it puts him in the company of James Harden, Damian Lillard, the guys that can basically beat you from anywhere on the court or find an open man, right? That is so rare. And he, he's 6'9", 6'10". You know, I mean, maybe not 6'10". But he's a decent, I think, 6'9", at least. And really, the only other guy the wingspan. that's done that is Kevin Durant, right? So, boy... With what Brandon Ingram was able to do from day one, carry this team when he was such the focal point by defenses. You you mentioned this, where when Drew was out, Lonzo in his confidence, there was no Zion. Yeah, teams were keying on B.I. Guess what? He's still scoring 30 points, still having those efficient nights. So I have a difficult time believing that somebody had a better year when the NBA places such a premium on offense, right? MVPs usually come down to which player had the best individual offensive Yep. season I feel like that kind of should apply to most improved as well we've seen it in years past I think Brandon therefore cements himself over Tatum out of Bayou whoever else you want to throw out there what do you think yeah because to me like I said Brandon plays played the same minutes this year basically that he played last year he played more games because he's been healthier but the minutes didn't change really the minutes didn't change when you look at guys like Bam out of Bayou who almost you know increased his minutes by 40 percent from last year 
You know, so the numbers are going to go up. That to me is just an, it's exponential. He didn't shoot any better than he did last year. He, his rebounding rate isn't that much different than it was last year. So to me, that's not really improvement. That's just getting an opportunity. The same thing is what I would say for a lot of those other guys. Like I said, Devontae Graham to me just doesn't, he's not efficient enough and he's not the guy. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have to carry the burden. There are other guys on that team like a Terry Rozier who has to have the ball, who leads the team at times. There's a Malik Monk who's going to get big shots. P.J. Washington really came into his own this year. So you have a number of guys on that team who got better. And he's still a relatively inefficient guy. So to me, all the candidates that you have in that group, Brandon's the only one who, A, added elements to his game that you did not expect from a season ago. And then the responsibility that he has to carry is different than anybody else who's up for consideration for the award because none of those other players were asked to lead their team straight out of the gate and, and do it in a situation where no, they didn't know anybody either. It's not like they were on the same team. Most of these other guys were in the exact same situation and got the growth. Brandon gets traded to a place where he has no clue. And he's coming off the injury and all those other things. Take that out of the story though. Like you said, to change your game and become rather a from a compliment to a go-to and to break your own scoring mark three times in the first month and a half with a new team, to do things that no Pelican had done since Jamal Mashburn on the wing. Like, this was a historic season in a number of ways, but most importantly, it's because Brandon Ingram changed his game. Like, he changed who he is as a player rather than what they were telling him as the Lakers is set people up, do these things. He became the guy. And I, that, to me, is, dwarfs everybody else in this conversation. There's no better definition of the word most improved, improved guys, than Brandon. Last year for the Lakers, I felt like he might have been an average player at best, a volume uh, scorer without the efficiency this year he had an untold efficiency almost had a 60 percent true shooting percentage and when you combine that with what i what i said about his position that he plays at the three four and he still can play make for you 4.3 assists he had about a 15 uh, what was it about 15 percent uh, assist percentage he had it all and, and at age 22 he's only going to get better i feel like right so I just don't see it, David. I really don't. I know that the argument can be made. Of course, the team, they floundered 28-36. Usually voters have a real issue if your team's really kind of underperformed or just, you know, doesn't even make the playoffs. They'll hold it against you. But those things should be taken into consideration for him. The fact that you are playing without Zion, that you were playing with an injured favors, that you were playing with an injured Zoe, that that all these things – and you were consistent, like on a night-to-night basis. It wasn't a roller coaster for him. He was doing the same things every night. And that, to me, like I don't care what the, the record in that case, to me, again, look at everybody else's situation. Everybody else was inserted into a lineup that was already filled with veterans, that was already filled with team, teams and, and organizations that were ready to win. Bam Adebayo was put in a situation with leadership and other rookies, young players who got to take control. Everybody else, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, anybody you want to talk about, had somebody else to relieve the pressure for them early. How bad was Drew the first 20 games of the season? Mm. That's, I mean, Drew was awful. 
at the beginning. But Brandon, every night. They were in yeah, games. The in it, right. they, uh, like you said, it wasn't his fault that they didn't finish because he had carried them for the first 42 minutes, most likely, on a night-to-night basis. So I think his situation dwarfs everybody's. His is the most compelling, just as a, a factual case, no narrative involved. He added more. He did more. He meant more. I think you could have taken Bam out of bio, out of Miami, and they still could have been a good, solid playoff team. And I would say that about, you know, the Celtics could make the playoffs if Jason Tatum had missed, this, missed chunks of games. Jalen Brown played the fewest games out of all the people on the list, you know, that we're talking about. So yeah, Brandon was, was there. a star last year too, David. He was on the edge of making superstar this year. But did he really add to his game? I don't know. Not, not that kind of transformation like B.I. underwent. No. All you saw out of Tatum this year is better shot selection. That, that's really what it became was better shots. Because last year he tried too hard to be Kobe. B.I. never shot over 70% from the free throw line first three years. He's well into the 80s this year. Never shot threes, was afraid to shoot threes. Now he's shooting, what was it, over Almost six a game. On, and for the longest time, he was over 40%. He was 40%, over 40, yeah. Over 40. It, I mean, at 38. There's a real chance he could have been 50, 40, 80. You know, people say 90, but God, just to get to 80. That, that's so world's better than what he's ever done. So, yeah, most improved, hats down, from, or hats off. Easy, easy. What's strange is for a guy like Drew Holiday, who I think would have a legitimate case for Defensive Player of the Year, he may not get on a – he certainly probably won't get the first yeah. team on defense. It's going to be a struggle to get him on second team. But if you ask every player in the league, and we've seen the tape, you ask everybody, right. who's the toughest guy that you go against, and they all say – is Drew Holiday. That dude is a monster. I don't want to mess with Drew Holiday. And yet here we are begging to get Drew on an all-defensive team. And why doesn't he have that reputation? Because he's just not vocal. He's not Pat Bev in your face. You, you see him, right, on, on TV, John at the player, trying, you know, start something a little bit here, they're trash-talking. That's not Drew. I feel like that honestly hurts him. But you're right. Every player, when asked, they've always mentioned Drew as, as a guy I don't want to go up against, a guy that's – one of, if not the most underrated players in the league. So, yeah, I, whether he makes or not, I think it's going to be fully tied to, even though they say none of those games should count, is how the Pelicans wrap up those eight games. I think they, they need to do something because their defense was abysmal for all too much, all too often. But, the, you know, for him to have realistic chance of the first team, maybe even the second team. And he's just, again, there may be no more versatile defender in the league right now than Drew. There may be no more physical like legit physical, not annoying. Like I love Pat Bev as a player. LeBron James, David. Who else bullied him? We ever saw. But he, yeah, he did. He had the best defensive numbers against LeBron of anybody on the Pelicans. People acted like like putting Drew in the post with LeBron was a failure that night. It was actually not. It was Josh Hart who got murdered. It was you know everybody else. Drew held him to below five hundred shooting in the post. So it's like, yeah, who can't Drew guard other than centers? I always laugh at what he did to Kevin Love in that Cleveland game. <laughs> oh, I mean, my God. He, and that's the thing, like, Pat Bev, like you said, the, Pat Bev is, is a guy who demonstrates. There's a lot of, I'm in your face, Tony, look at me, Tony, I'm annoying. Tony, Tony Allen was like that, right? But Tony was a legit dude, too. Tony, I mean, you know, Tony, Tony had his rep. Tony had a real rep. Where Kobe says, I don't like going up against Tony Allen. Yeah, but his defensive, like, intensity resonated out there in court. It doesn't with Drew as no. much, right? He's just a guy who'll just scurry around, give effort, but you don't, his face, 
never changes expression, right? You can't Except see him getting pumped up. He you can see him smile. Up. I like when Drew gets that grin of like, you're not going to score, dude. Like after he's already stopped him and he's like. Remember when he did Buddy Healed? We saw one game. Kings were in town. Ooh, right before halftime, I think uh, he, he made Buddy almost cry, I think, <laughs> bringing the ball up the court. I just – I love that. When they unleash Drew and they say, like, get him 94. And, and it's just – he doesn't lose a step. He's always in control. And, I, again, I don't think there's a more versatile defender in the NBA. No, I, I do yeah, not. I'd be curious to see if he gets the award, though, right? I, I just I, – I think that a lot of voters won't see it no. that way. And that, that's the – I think that's – it becomes such a reputational thing. Because, you know, a guy like – Bruce Bowen was a very good, good basketball player. But Bruce Bowen had very limited responsibilities. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, very limited responsibilities. Drew does not have a limit to his responsibilities on any given night. You don't know what he's going to be asked to do. And it could be every one of the top four scorers on the other team, Drew may guard at one point or the other. And not on a switch, but because that's who he's been assigned to at that moment. And so – Think about the Pelicans were winners. Think of mm-hmm. how much accolade Drew would be getting. I feel like it would be Scotty Pippen-esque, right? Drew's never going to be that 1A, but I feel like he had the potential to be a 1B, maybe 1C or something like that. Right. But the Pelicans just never won, right? And, and when you combine that with his personality, he, he, he just ne- doesn't stand out in the crowd to people. And he never put a regular a true, fan. Never put a true one in front of him. And that's the thing, too, that's, is, yes. you know, we saw him at his best with Rondo and AD on that playoff stretch. And he probably, played, he was unreal, honestly, that season. Yeah. He's never played like that. At never played time. better. Never. Never played better. Uh, and he hasn't reached that since. Not even when this year with the Lakers and people are like, no, you didn't see it. If you didn't watch those final 25, 30 games two seasons ago of AD, what you're watching this year is nothing compared to that. Mm-hmm. And But Drew, yeah, I think that's – Somebody asked me who, who I thought should be the first jersey retired. And for a long time, you know, I've always said David West. Mm-hmm. And, but now the more and more, it's like, yeah, it has to be Drew. Now, now I'm thinking about it. Who's going to be first? Because I mean, yeah, Chris Paul is going to be a Hall of Famer. David West is 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 you know unimpeachable to me as, but Drew is Mr. Pelican now. He New Orleans loves him. New he's the Derek him. Jeter of the Pelicans in that regard. He's he's not Babe Ruth. He's not Joe DiMaggio. He's not Mickey Mantle. You know, not the best player in franchise Good history. Comparison. Yeah. But he's the guy, the professional, the guy who not understands what it means to be on this team, to lead these guys. It's just he hasn't had the, the team success. But he is Mr. Pelican. That's a good way to end the show. <laughs> <laughs> Ali, tell them, folks, um, how they can follow you and the great stuff you, we're doing over at the Bird Rights and uh, what we got coming up, man. Yeah, well, you just mentioned it, right? The scrimmage games are going to be starting up, so we're going to be finally talking, analyzing real basketball, not having to guess or just talk about practices, right, on some faraway land called the Orlando campus. No, it's going to be great. You can catch all of our work over at the Bird Rights, all at SB Nation, and follow us on Twitter, right? We're always there. We're always giving you the best analysis, I feel like, out there. So me, personally, Ollie, at Ollie Cosell or at the Bird Rights. Uh, Thank you again, my brother. We will talk real soon, of course, offline, as we always do. But thank you for being on Hard to Paint. And thank you for listening. Uh, We'll be back again tomorrow with another one.